The Sermon on the Mount is this, uh, it, it's in the Gospel of Matthew, it's chapter 5, and uh, Matthew writes, a guy named Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew, and he wrote it from uh, kind of a, his Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience in the ancient Near East, all right? And so there's a, uh, this happened in a culture, and it was written to a culture, so there's some nuances in it. And Matthew's written with some, you know, some intentionality. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, we find these five lengthy discourses, all right? So there's five lengthy chunks of of Jesus' teaching that we don't find necessarily in the same way uh, in, and it's not focused in the same way in the other Gospels. So, like, so in like Mark, Luke, and John, we don't see these long sermons over and over and over again. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's five of them, and the Sermon on the Mount is the first one, all right? And the Sermon on the Mount is given uh, in... Um, in a, in a real place and it's a real sermon. It's probably not like a word for word deal. Like you could sit down and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in a half hour. Okay, you could read it over lunch, read it while you're eating breakfast. You could, it's easy. It probably didn't come out of Jesus' mouth exactly the same. The Beatitudes are probably the exception of that because it's a poem that he begins with. But most of it is kind of, it, it doesn't, the text doesn't seem to say that someone was sitting there writing down everything that Jesus said. It was more like, here's what Jesus Jesus said, and they share what Jesus said. And so the words that, that are in there, that if you have a red letter Bible, the red letter words aren't necessarily the exact words that came out of Jesus' mouth. But they are the words that Matthew wanted to use, and the specific words that Matthew wanted to use to express to his audience, to us today, what Jesus was saying and what he was talking about during this Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is uh, uh, is this um, aggressive and convicting and transformative sermon that Jesus gives where he basically takes, okay, you think you know what you're doing and I'm going to change everything on you. And, and there's this, if, if you were only to like study one section of scripture for the rest of your life, I, w- I would say Matthew 5, 6, 7 because it is just um, so... Uh, it all encompasses all of life and, and just goes through exactly how we live and what reality looks like for a person who follows Jesus. And so Jesus uh, is up on this mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you have little titles in your Bible, uh, it's probably by Capernaum. You can go there today and they can point and say, here's the traditional location of Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain. And, be, and there's a church on it, you know, because that's what we do. Christians in Israel or in the Near East put churches on everything that's important. It's like, oh, Jesus once walked by here, put a church on it, you know. And it's like birds in Portland doing you're like, oh, that's cool, put a bird on it. You know, and uh, so <laughs> this, this is how we act in the ancient Near East. So there's actually a church on top of this traditional hill and then down at the bottom. The church on top is like around 200 years old and the one on the bottom is about 1500 years old. It's just in ruins but um, there is this kind of uh, this traditional place. We don't know that that's exactly what it is but that's this is what Jesus is doing. He spends his adult life in Capernaum so it's really likely that he did this sermon right outside of Capernaum. He's walking around Jesus is touring Galilee and kind of these crowds are starting to follow him because he's giving teachings. He He's talking about the kingdom of God, talking about what he is here for and what his mission is, but he's also healing people. And in a time when there is no such thing as like modern medicine as we understand it today, someone who can heal me, uh, that's a guy that I'm going to go and visit, you know. And so large crowds of people start gathering around Jesus and start coming to see what's going on and, and uh, trying to get uh, his message and understand the things that he's teaching. Um, 
A couple of things that I want to talk about. Um, there's some introductory stuff today that we need to go over because the Sermon on the Mount we're going to talk about until the fall. And uh, it's, it's this long passage with a lot of little chunks. And so um, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's kind of a big deal. And there's three kind of uh, errors, I think, in understanding the Sermon on the Mount, all right? And uh, you may have been taught these in a church, and I apologize for disagreeing with your old pastor or something when you were a kid, but um, this he might have told you this. He was lying to you, and he's a terrible person. So um, no. <laughs> there is uh, a, a couple of things that we make um, that are true, but if we run to extremes with them, they become untrue, if that makes sense. And th- this kind of a normal thing in life. It's true, but if you take it to an extreme, it's, it's not true anymore. And so the three things. The first is that um, people like to take the Sermon on the Mount and separate it from Jesus. And, and the reason that we separate it from Jesus is so that we can make a new law out of it. We replace this kind of Old Testament law with this new Sermon on the Mount law where we had the old rules and now we have new rules, but we still have rules. And this is a temptation because we like rules. Like rules make us comfortable, right? Like when you are driving down the road, you're going really fast and there's a a strip of paint this tall keeping the cars really fast coming this way from running into you. And we all appreciate those rules, right? Like we, rules make us function. You came in and sat down and faced forwards in your chair because we have this unwritten rule that you don't turn your chair around and stare at the people behind you, right? Nobody did that. If people did that, you'd feel uncomfortable. And so we like our rules and that kind of makes us feel good. So if Jesus would give us some rules that would be a good deal and I would know where I stand with God because I can say here's the four rules and I followed three of them I broke one so I'm going to get 70% on my God test right and it's 75 so, uh, so you may only get 50 because you just made that mistake too but um, so we, we kind of we're attracted to these rules and, and we can do that if we separate the fact that God spoke these words. If, this, if Jesus actually speaks this and, and it's God in human form or in, uh, you know, it's 100% God, 100% human, Jesus speaks these words, then uh, it's no longer a rule ethic that's going on. It's a relational ethic that's going on. And in relationships, rules don't make relationships. You don't sit down to have a relationship with someone and try to figure out what the rules are in your relationship. You may have had this conversation where you sit down and you or the person that you're in relationship says, I think we need to kind of define our relationship. All right? In that conversation, half of that conversation hates it. I promise, all right? Uh, Some of you might love that. I don't understand why anyone would love to sit down and define our relationship, all right? I'm never going to define my relationship, all right? To me, any girl that's ever said that to me, I heard, we're breaking up. That's what I heard. And uh, that worked, you know? And and if you're, some of you like to define relationships, I'm sorry, but uh, the people who you say that to don't enjoy it. And uh, there is this kind of, we want to have a rule, but what God wants to have with us is relationship. And so that's the first big error, that we're going to try to take this and make them rules, okay? The second big error, um, I want to make sure I get these in order. Okay, the second big error is that these are designed uh, to produce guilt, all right? So God is setting up this huge standard that you can never meet so that you feel guilty and know that you need God, all right? 
that's a, a misreading of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is a huge standard, but it's not designed that you would feel guilty, all right? Like in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to deal with some things and, and Jesus is going to say, you've heard it said like this, but I'm going to push it all the way to this. Like you th heard it said, okay, don't murder people, but I'm actually going to say if you hate people, that's the same as murder. And you might say, well, I'm doing good. I have never murdered someone. You know, I've followed that rule. But I've hated people. And Jesus says, then you count as a murderer. When you get to heaven, you sit in murderer section uh, because you hate people. Uh, and we can see that and we're never going to reach that kind of, uh, of a place where we're able to say, uh, I've perfectly followed the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not designed to make you feel guilt so that you turn to Jesus and depend on him more. You may, like, you won't meet the standard. But the point of it is not, when you take it to extreme, is not to make you feel guilty about not meeting the standard. Alright? Third thing, the third error is that people read this and they say, well, that's nice. The Sermon on the Mount is nice and it describes a reality someday. And we hear words like kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven and we say, that's nice someday when we get to that place called heaven or that place called kingdom of God. When Jesus is talking about the Sermon on the Mount, though, he's talking in present words. And he's talking in this is a present reality and this is a description of the reality of a Christian life. And so if you hear the Sermon on the Mount and you go, that's a very nice sermon and that'll be very nice someday, that's true that in heaven this is going to be reality. In heaven... The reality will be that, that, that there is no hate, that there is no relationships falling apart, all right? There is no, we need to define our relationship conversation. That doesn't happen in heaven, all right? But when you put all of that just in heaven and not here, you take that to extreme and you miss out on what the Sermon on the Mount is actually about. Uh, I want to define some specific words on what I think the Sermon on the Mount is. And I'm stealing from my friend Travis, who I knew uh, about 10 years ago. I went to college with him. When he talked about these passages, uh, he called them enabling criteria, uh, which has just stuck with me forever. Enabling criteria. In that Jesus wants you to be able to follow him. He wants you to follow him. And so he wants to set up your life in a way that is an encouragement and a help in following him. And so it's an enabling criteria. When Jesus says things like, uh, if you want to follow me, you have to give up everything. Or if you want to follow me, you have to give up hate. What he's saying is you can't hold on to me and hold on to hate at the same time. If you're holding on to hate, your grip on me falls apart. Or your want to follow me falls apart. Because you're trying to hold on to something that is antithetical to what I'm trying to do or what my message is or what I am on earth. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, what we should read into this is that this is the reality that Christians live in. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is how we live. And this is the way that we think and our ethic for life is contained here. Understanding that part of our ethic for life involves this pattern of obedience and repentance. I promise, sometime between now and when you die, you're going to sin. Most of you, right, are going to sin. You're going to fall short. You're going to not meet standard that Jesus gives in his life and in his teaching. But that doesn't mean 
that we don't live in the reality of the standard because we understand, we don't take all the errors to extreme, we understand that we do have guilt and we understand that there are standards and that they are high and that we're empowered by the Spirit of God to be able to meet those. And so we live in the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. We live in the reality of Jesus' life and teaching in our current day, not someday. But not thinking that we're perfect. We're not thinking that we are Jesus or we are God or, or we meet the standard or we deserve something that, that God promises someday for us. Sorry. All right. So let's read this a little bit, okay? Um, There's going to be three verses. Uh, this is going to be fantastic. So um, we're going to read through three verses. Next week we're going to do one verse, the week after two, the week after one. <laughs> like, uh, so we're going to slow right down and, uh, and just take absolutely forever to get through this. Um, seeing the crowds, he, the he is Jesus. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and this is beatitude number one, there's nine, this is number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to talk about beatitudes, but I want to just spend a moment on what's happening first. Jesus sees the crowds, and I want you to notice this. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. And this is the be kind of the beginning in the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. We see the beginning of this split happening between the disciples who are fully committed and no plan B. I'm throwing it all in with Jesus. Uh, that's what Jesus in their culture would be like a rabbi and they would be disciples or they would use the word Talmidim uh, and they would uh, actually be following him and trying to do what he does and learn what he teaches. Not in a weird cult way, more of an, an adoring way. Uh, and, and so there's this kind of following that's going on by the disciples who come to him. But then there's the crowds who Jesus sees there also. And this kind of two-part build to the people who are interested in Jesus is, is something that is, is just true. There are people who are interested in Jesus or who are following Jesus, uh, and those two groups exist at the same time. Here, when I'm talking each week, I talk primarily to Christian people. I understand that not everyone in here m might be a Christian. Or you might self-identify as a Christian just because you've always said you're a Christian. But maybe you don't have that commitment to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're interested. Or you're curious. Or you know a Christian and they seem to be having a good life and you're like, well, I'd like to know what that's about. Or you've read the Bible and you've said, well, that guy Jesus seems to make sense so I want to go and see how true it is. That's an interested person, right? And so when we talk about the Bible, we don't talk with insider weird code language, but we talk as Christians to Christians. And the people who are in the crowd who are interested are willing, are, are here to listen in and hear what's going on. So we're not going to use hard words so that people don't understand, or we'll at least explain our hard words so people understand. We don't have weird rituals that show who's in and who's out. 
But we do understand that there is a, a, a kind of dichotomy in, our, in who we are. That some of us in this room have just fully thrown it in. Jesus is my only option in life. That's what I'm doing. I'm serving Jesus with the rest of my life. Whereas others of us are like, I'm kind of in this much. Or I'm kind of curious about this. Or I'd like to know what's going on. It seems that Jesus is giving me a benefit and a lot of people are following Jesus at this point because he's doing healings. He's teaching something that they've never heard before. So I'd like to hear more about this, know more about this. And that's a completely acceptable thing. That you fall in love with Jesus by hanging around with him. At some point, if you're a fully committed follower of Jesus, at some point you went from, I'm interested in Jesus, to committed to Jesus. But you are in that crowd, or what this describes as crowd. And so when they come up, on, when Jesus goes up and sits on the mountain, which is how rabbis would teach, they would sit and all the other people would stand because they were like this revered thing. It was kind of, it was the opposite of what we're doing here. And so you would come to church and I would sit and you would all stand, you know, and, and you're like, these metal chairs, it's, I'd rather be standing. But uh, there is this kind of, uh, he sits down and it's very, when it says he opened his mouth and, be, and began to, and taught them, that's a, how they would talk about rabbis when they were t- giving teachings. And so Jesus is giving this teaching to his disciples, all right? In that his disciples are taking notes. They're saying, this is how we're going to live. Jesus is giving us, this is the details, we're going to pay attention. And yet the, he's also teaching to the crowd in a way that the crowd is invited to move from curious to committed, move from a crowd to a congregation, uh, move into uh, what Jesus is doing. And so the Beatitudes are, are given to anyone who will listen, uh, or the whole Sermon on the Mount, sorry, is given to anyone who will listen, but it's specifically for the disciples. And then it's an invitation for the people who are curious to move into the realm of being a disciple. So it begins with the Beatitudes. These nine statements that Jesus gives in kind of a poetic form. Blessed are the blank, for theirs is the blank. Blessed are the something or some kind of situation, for they, and then this uh, circumstance that happens to them, or this uh, consequence to what's going on in their lives. Beatitude, we use the word beatitude because for a long time the church used a Latin version of the Bible called the Vulgate, written by a guy named Jerome in the 400s. And uh, that, we use the word, I don't know Latin, but it's beatus, uh, who, which means blessed. And so we ended up with beatitude from that in just kind of a traditional way. So it's from a Latin translation of the Bible. That's where the word beatitude comes from. And it means blessed because each of these nine statements begins with the word blessed. Blessed, this week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And each one works like that. The next one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, these kind of beatitude statements, we can find them in other places. This is a common way of speaking. And this would be a common way of opening a long sermon with this, here's my kind of nine-point ding, and now I'm going to say a lot of other things, all right? Uh, And so this is not unconventional. Yet, the things that Jesus says in them are unconventional. Like I just said, the second one is, is shocking. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the word blessed, it's kind of hard because we don't really have this in our language because it kind of means blessed plus happy plus fortunate all at the same time. 
so kind of means like this is your this is you're having a good day. Things are good if, and and it doesn't make sense for us to hear things are good if you're mourning, for you will be comforted. Because if you've been in mourning, you don't think I'm so glad this terrible thing happened because I'm going to experience comfort. Like I'm so glad my world just fell apart because somebody's going to make me a quilt. Right? You don't think that way. And so when Jesus says these in a conventional way, he's saying unconventional things. Uh, it'd be like uh, a folk singer singing folk music but using heavy metal lyrics. <laughs> you know, and you would be like, this is confusing because I understand the music and it makes sense, but the things you're saying are confusing in the context and the way you're saying them. And so Jesus leads with these Beatitudes, saying things in a conventional way, but saying unconventional things. Uh, now, all of these, and I want to give this kind of a lead in before we talk about these. The first half of these are all conditions that we find ourselves in or characteristics of us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Uh, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Uh, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you for, for my name's sake. Doesn't mean that we should seek all of those things. This doesn't mean, blessed are the poor in spirit, so I need to figure out how to be poor in spirit so that I can be blessed. So this isn't like a condition for a prize. Alright? Like it isn't, I'm going to be poor in spirit so that I can have the kingdom of heaven. So I need to figure out what poor in spirit is so I can get there, so I can get the treat at the end. Right? So when I get to heaven, I get a little kingdom of heaven. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure I want it because it's a prize that's in the Bible. Uh, this isn't where we're going with this. This isn't what Jesus was intending. Instead, it's more like poor in spirit is a reality. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But poor in spirit is a reality. And in that reality, we have a belonging of the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are the poor in spirit for, in that condition or in that characteristic, the consequence of that. Not the prize or the reward. The consequence of that is the kingdom of heaven. So when you're poor in spirit, or when you have that experience, or when you have that characteristic, the consequence of that is ownership in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, which doesn't mean you're the king of the king in heaven, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But you have a certain amount of experience and character, your character is developed in the kingdom of heaven. And so each of them, like blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, doesn't mean you should go and try to destroy something so you can mourn. Alright? Or it doesn't mean when you mourn you should be really happy about it. There are Christians that will say this, like you should be happy when you're mourning. Uh, no, you should mourn when you're mourning. Right? Like that's what you should do. That's an appropriate emotional response if you look at the life of Jesus who cried when his friends died. Alright? Mourning, that's normal. Emotion is normal. It, it not normal. Normal doesn't exist. It is good. It is healthy. Uh, all right? Normal doesn't exist here at the Grove. You've got to go to another church for that. Um, but there is, we don't look for the things that Jesus describes. We experience them, and we're not surprised when they're part of our reality. 
So within the church, within this group of disciples and interested crowd, we should see and we should not be surprised when there are those who are pure in heart, when there are those who are meek, when there are those who mourn. We should not be surprised when this is our experience in our life. And when we see that or when we experience that, we can know that that characteristic or that experience is involving a consequence that this week poor in spirit involves a consequence of kingdom of God. Next week, mourning involves a consequence of comforted. And so we understand that these are realities that are current. These are the way that Christians live. And we understand that this isn't something that we're seeking. It is something that is true. All right? So that was a ton of background. So let's actually talk about this verse, all right? Verse number three. This is Beatitude number one, all right? We actually get into these when we get into the woes later. It's like chapter 16 and 19 or something like that. And, and Jesus goes through these in a negative sense, railing on the religious people, and it's fantastic. But uh, we'll get there in two years. The, uh, <laughs> this week, we're going to talk about being blessed in the, uh, the poor in spirit. Now, blessed. So happy, fortunate, uh, blessed, lucky, uh, they're having a great day, are the people who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, we use words like humility to describe this. We use words like uh, desperate, despondent. Um, there's a guy named Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrase called The Message, and he uses, uh, he says, when, blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. And he tries to explain it that way. And I think we can understand that. When you're at the end of your rope, and you've been there, you've experienced that, you've lived through what it means to be at the end of your rope. And, and you've held on. And he says that's a good place to be at the end of your rope because the consequence of being at, your end of, at the end of your rope, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the people who are at the end of the rope, who when I use that word, some of you right away are like, that's me today, right now. Those people are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean someday. It doesn't mean you get to go to heaven if you're at the end of your rope. It means when you're at the end of your rope, Eugene Peterson says this in the message, when you're at the end of your rope, there's less of you and there's more of God. And that's a situation that you want to be in. You don't want to get there that way but you want to be in that situation. You don't want to be at the end of your rope, but you want to be in a situation where there's less of you and more of God, because that's kingdom of heaven. I've often thought, and I, and I talk about this all the time, that your experience of Jesus and your experience of Christianity is going to be different than mine. And it's going to be different from the people around you. And not different in a whole new religion way, but different in life experience kind of way. I think that people who've suffered in their life understand Jesus in a way that I don't. Uh, people who, or if, if you have children, all of a sudden you understand God's sacrifice of his son in a whole different way than people who don't have children. When you come home and your kids say, Mom, Dad, I love you, you understand prayer in a way that people that have never heard those words don't understand prayer. Uh, or when your kids sing a song to you, if you've had a middle schooler in band and you go and you think it's amazing, <laughs> then you start to understand what our worship is to Jesus. 
because I'm singing over here and I, I think I'm pretty, I sit near the speaker so I think I sound fantastic, right? I'm like, I'm good. But Jesus knows that when I get to heaven, this will be fixed. <laughs> and, and, and so our presentation to God is understood in a deeper way when people have given things to us that are from their heart but we know that they're not the greatest creation on the like when Mozart wrote his symphony he wasn't thinking of a middle school band right but it's amazing because of our relationship to it and so we experience an understanding of God's relationship to us because of our experience here on earth so when people are at the end of the rope what this verse tells us is they're experiencing the kingdom of God in a way that the people around them who aren't at the end of the rope aren't. If you find yourself at the end of your rope, maybe you're in a relationship that just doesn't seem to be working out, or you don't know what to do with your children, or your schooling is so hard you feel overwhelmed, or your job is terrible, or you're having a difficult time getting a job, and you feel like you're at the end of your rope, I'm not saying you should throw your hands up and celebrate. I'm not saying you should do a dance. I'm not saying you should be excited about that. What I'm saying is there, you will experience God in a way that the people around you don't have the ability to experience God. You will learn things about Jesus and about yourself that the people around you don't experience and don't know. The kingdom of God will belong to you when people around you are wondering where the depth to your spirituality came from. This kind of going through this end of your ropeness is entirely, I think, relational. If you watch action movies, right? Uh, we don't experience this because we're not secret spies. But if you watch ac action movies, like the new Mission Impossible movie, and Tom Cruise, the greatest actor of our generation, falls out of the window. <laughs> it's not a comedy. It's an action movie. He falls out of the window, and the guy grabs him, right? If you're going to fall, and this happens in every action movie, you're hanging off the cliff, you push your hand up, they focus in on the hand and there's a grab and they pull you up. That builds your relationship. Like if you, someone pulls you back in the window and pulls you up, you, you've built some trust with that relationship. Like, hey, I know that you care about me because you didn't let me fall to my death, right? This is how we see action movies happen. And in our life, sometimes we feel like we're at the end of that rope or we're hanging off that edge or we're stuck out the window. And on the other end of that is God. And when we're able to no longer pull ourselves up, we're able to experience God pulling us up in a way that the people who are pulling themselves up just fine will never experience. And you'll experience a trust and a faith and an understanding of God that the people who keep pulling themselves up just fine will never experience and won't get to experience. And we've become like masters of this veneer thing where we're, we're able to put up this like this shell around us where we look like everything's good. Like we're not hanging out a window. 
And we get up in the morning and we, we spend time making ourselves look good and shave and put on deodorant so we show up and people think that's not a guy at the end of his rope. He's, a, he's fine. When we were starting to um, plant this church up here in North Albany about three years ago I had lunch with some people and they said the hard thing about reaching people in North Albany is they have it all together. They're fine. They don't need Jesus. <laughs> and then I started meeting people in North Albany. Right? <laughs> and, and the more I get to know people, the less I think they have it all together. <laughs> it's true for me too. I'm making friends with people and hoping to be able to share Jesus with them. And I'm thinking the more I get to know them, the worse they need Jesus. And they're probably thinking the same thing about me. Especially if they don't know I'm a Christian. They're probably like, dang, that guy needs some religion. Right? Uh, because... If you don't know people, like if you walk in here and you look around this room, there's people you don't know and you just look at them, you think, they've got it all together. They were able to dress themselves this morning and drive here, you know. They've probably got it all together. Seriously though, in our culture, it's become radically easy to look like we have it all together. Like it's, it's cheaper than it's ever been to look like you're fine. All right. We, we have like entire industries built on making it look like you're fine. All right. The, you can develop this persona so that people who can't get close to you have no idea what's really going on. It's the closeness that reveals where we are as far as being at the end of our rope. When you're hanging out the window, there has to be an intimate connection there where you grab hands and you're holding on and you're very close, and there's a deep understanding of what's going on in this situation. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus is looking to have. And people who are able to be at the end of the rope are able to experience that in a way that people who aren't will never, ever experience. And so those people who are at the end of the rope, <laughs> sorry, so those of us <laughs> who are at the end of our rope. I don't think you should be happy about it. I'm not saying we should have like a, a birthday party for it or something weird. There are religions or people who are religious who try to tell you that. If you're at the end of your rope, you should be frustrated. You should be feeling desperate. You should be feeling frustrated. That's real. But you should understand that the blessing in that is that you are growing in your relationship with Jesus in a way that a lot of people aren't. In a way that people around you are busy working on their veneer and working on the image. And while the depth of your soul is growing, the intimacy that you're experiencing with Jesus is growing. Last thing I want to talk about is this. Every one of these is like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that word theirs or they, is in every single one of these. And here's why I think this is encouraging. Because if you feel like you're at the end of your rope, or you feel like you're hanging out that window, I don't know why this is encouraging, but you're not the only one. You're not the only one in your situation. When Jesus was on this earth, we have his prayers recorded. Like in John 17, we have his prayer recorded. Yeah, that guy was feeling like he was at the end of his rope. When Jesus would talk to his disciples and they just wouldn't get it because they were kind of daft, he was feeling like he was at the end of his rope. But when he was facing down the cross, end of his rope. And next week morning, 
Jesus just absolutely broke down and wept when his friends died. He could raise them from the dead. He had that power. Yet when his friends died, he cried that much. And so not only are you there as far as being at the end of your rope, I promise there are people in this room who are at the end of their rope. It might not be exactly the same as you or the same situation, but there are people who are there with you who are hanging out that window just like you are, hoping that someone grabs their hand, hoping that God grabs their hand. But Jesus himself came to earth to hang out that window right beside you. And so when you're looking to look for Jesus and you're hanging on the end of your rope, his hand is probably like right on yours, (laughs) probably holding yours on that rope, but he's hanging from it just like you. And he's with you, which is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. King Jesus is with you. And so it's not that you need to climb up your rope so that God will be impressed with you. Is that God may be pulling that rope up. He may be on the other end. But at the same time, he's right there. Which is why your relationship with him will deepen. Because it's not like you're telling something he's never known. He's been where you are. And he's experienced what you've experienced. And he's blessed in the same way that you're blessed. In a completely counterintuitive way that does not make any sense. When you're at the end of your rope... There's a blessing there. There's an experience and a reality there that you can't experience anywhere but at the end of that rope. So I'm not saying we should celebrate it. I'm not saying so you should be in a good mood. But I am saying the depth of your soul will grow in relationship to Jesus because of the experience that you're having. I'd like to pray, and I'd like to specifically pray for those of us who are in this room who feel like they're at the end of the rope, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand or anything like that because I want it just to be you. But I'm going to, let's, let's pray together. And, and just before we do, if you're feeling like, if I, when I talk about being at the end of your rope and you're like, yep, here's where I'm at the end of my rope in this relationship or in this situation, I want you to just tell Jesus, this is where I'm at the end. This is where I'm frustrated. This is where I'm poor in my spirit. And then together, we'll pray. Jesus, all over this room, there are those of us who are admitting to you how we're feeling, like we're hanging out that window, that we're just barely holding on, and we're hoping that you grab our arm and pull us in, eventually and slowly, and and those kinds of things, Jesus, but... I want to pray for those of us who are there. And I pray that you would encourage hearts and encourage souls in that place. Not that it's a great place to be, because it's not. Not that we should be happy about being there, because we shouldn't. But encourage us in building our relationship with you. Be with us at the end of our rope so that our experience of the kingdom of heaven can have a depth and a dimension that otherwise is completely unavailable. God, for those of us who are at the end of our rope, I pray that you would bless us. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
May your mercy and grace be upon us all. Amen.